boy, I really had a hard time getting my handle on WWDC. I still well, do. Two weeks yeah. later, it's it still feels like a lot to digest. There is a lot. There's a lot. So there's a lot of technical stuff. Yeah. Huge, huge amount of technical stuff. And then there's the entire sort of cultural change. Yeah. Have you um, watched a lot of sessions in a week uh, since or uh, caught up or, or read the you know developer documentation? Yeah, I've been absorbing it as much as I can. Yeah. Impressive. <laughs> I, don't, I, I literally don't know where to start. Well, here's what I would think. I, I, I think I mentioned this. You know, the whole thing is a goddamn blur, what I mentioned on stage, on the stage show, which was the previous episode. But I think I mentioned this. But I think it deserves even more attention because I think even more of it than I understood the day after the keynote. So much of what they announced technically comes down to XPC. Yes. Right. Yeah. And, and we've known, you know, and that's uh, that's Apple's term for inter application communication, right? The X, I guess, is. Yeah, it's a nice it's a nice framework based on mock message passing. Okay. And they've been working on it for a long time, and I think you guys mentioned this on the debug roundtable, which was amazing to me because you guys had like six guys in there. And it really was like an orderly discussion where everybody got to to speak plenty. Which was I, kind of I was actually, yeah, I was kind of surprised we pulled right? it off. It, we were all in the same moon, though, so that helps. Right. That, you know, that makes all the difference in the world because you can do little things like you make eye contact and it's like, I've got a point. You can kind of like, you know, like, hey, I, I've got something and people can concede to you. Whereas if you're all over Skype, it's, it's right. a lot more crosstalk. Yeah, like I'm, I'm sure during this show I'm going to end up talking over you at some point. Well, that's why I have you here, guy. Exactly. <laughs> but yeah, no, it went really well. Uh, and I'm not just saying that because it's, it's our show, but right. you know, I think listeners to your show would probably get a kick out of that one. Right. But it, it, one of the points that was brought up, I think it was Ryan Nielsen brought up, that, that outside developers have known for a while that Apple had this XPC architecture and was using it for their own stuff in the system because you can see it in like the stack traces you get when an app crashes you can see that that stuff's going on and yeah like if you bring up various share sheets like uh, the mail one i think or the um like the facebook sharing stuff yeah like facebook and twitter yes like yeah stuff like that will come up and what's happening is in your process there's a ui remote view controller it's called and that's basically just basically a canvas in which some other processes interface gets projected into into your app um and you know previously if there was a bug or something that you would <laughs> you would crash and you'd see a stack trace of all of the the private goodies that went on behind the scenes in yeah. order to make that happen so we knew that stuff was going on and you could see you know it, it didn't have to be a genius if you knew that was going on and you could see that that's how Apple implemented the Twitter and Facebook sharing, then you could kind of think, well, then that could be an API so that anybody could get into that share sheet. Uh, and we all kind of hoped that that was going to happen last year and didn't. Um, well, it, the reason for that is like it, it had been at least two operating systems that it had, that XPC had been in there. Hmm. Right. I think it was iOS 6 where some of that st the sharing stuff started, right? Could have been, but I think XPC was even in five. Well, then it's three, right? Five, yeah. six, seven before they yeah. opened it up to third parties. Yeah. Now, and to be, 
I don't. I don't actually believe XPC itself is yet open to third parties. So I can check. No, um, but they've but the stuff on top of it, right? Exactly, yeah. right. Yeah. Like that, they're they're building all this stuff on top of it, and that's how the keyboards. You know, all this crazy stuff. Well, not crazy, but all this seemingly divergent stuff, like the sharing sheets and keyboards, and I'm pretty sure uh, the new um, uh, WebKit. There's an yes. all new WebKit API. And we went all a long time where when Apple switched to the JIT, the just-in-time compiler, which requires memory being marked as executable, therefore didn't allow it for the third-party WebKit framework, that only Safari got to use the faster WebKit. Right. And they didn't slow down third-party WebKit. They just didn't let third-party apps that embed WebKit views take advantage of the new thing, which is a subtle yeah. difference, but it's... It is. Know. It's kind of funny. Like, yeah, it's not that they slowed it down. They just sped their own thing up. But a lot of people took it as that they yeah. slowed us down. And that only... It was not the case. Right. It's totally and a security thing. Yeah. I'm pretty sure that that's XPC too, right? So it's it not. Yeah. it's not that... You know the way that they've done this, and that they've given all apps that that use the new WebKit API the fastest WebKit on the system, is not by having WebKit running within your app anymore. It's a separate process, and much like Safari has been on the Mac for a while, where you've got these separate rendering processes in a restricted sandbox um, that only do the rendering, and then they project their view into the app through XPC. Right. So and so for now for new WebKit on iOS, um, the reason that they allow the just in time to compiler is because you're completely shielded from your app. Like you 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 see the results presented in your application, but um, malicious code can't right the actual with you, so, yeah. yeah the actual rendering process is a separate process. It's not right. just like a, a plugin or whatever. Yeah, same thing with the keyboards. So it is it's you're right. That's the, the the big story is XPC. I, so one of the things I was saying maybe last week was um, I think everybody's going to be talking about Swift a lot, but the, the big story is basically the extensions and XPC and what that allows it right. to, you know, to happen now and, and in the future. Uh, and it's, you know, a very Apple-like way of doing it. I mean, we repeat ourselves frequently where, where you know, so many times there's, you know, here's what we want, Apple, please let us do this. And then they listen to it and they think about the actual problem and then they solve it in a way that we didn't expect, right? Where everybody, yeah. I think, really was saying what we want is we want that super fast uh, JavaScript engine. And Apple didn't give it to us because or let third parties use it because of the, the security issues. Right. Um but they figured out a way to give it to us without having it running in the process. Same right. thing with keyboards. Yeah. It's, you know, it's that uh, measure twice, cut once kind of philosophy. Yeah. Where I think they look at the actual problem to be solved and try to come up with a solution for it rather than sort of cave to like, well, okay, fine. We'll let you run some JavaScript in, in your app. There were, there were rumors two years ago, a year ago. I think it might have been last year, but it was previous WWDC, and there were rumors. Somebody had reported that there were going to be third-party keyboards announced, and it came and went, and they weren't announced. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I spoke to somebody from Apple, you know, a friend in a position to know, and uh, and they were like, no, it wasn't, definitely wasn't going to happen that year. But, but that they had 
looked at it extensively. You know, like they knew an awful lot about how it worked on Android. And, and you know, this person was like, you wouldn't believe how it works on Android. Like it's more or less just a remote keylogger. And, you know, some of them, <laughs> you know, send every single key you press up to a server because they're doing, you know, server side stuff. You know, and that there's nothing you can do to, as a user to stop it. You install this thing from the Play Store and everything you type could be being sent to a server. And, it's bananas, and in some cases is not necessarily that it is that they're that they're doing anything malicious with it, but that they're doing it for, um, you know, QA or for some kind of yeah. server side stuff. For whatever reason, yeah, you don't even need to believe that they're bad actors. Just that the fact that the system can be exploited is ju it's it's just bad design, right? And they were like, I mean, you know, the, you know, we're looking at it, but I mean, there's no way we're going to do it if it, you know, if it works like that, right? So, um. So the custom keyboards, uh, you guess what you can't do? You can't use them to type into a secure text field. Ooh, interesting. Yeah, because when you think about it, that just makes sense. Yeah. So whenever you tap into a secure text field, either uh, like UI kit style or on the web, uh, you get switched to one of the system keyboards. Mm. Mm, I understand that, but then I guess that defeats one of the ideas that a bunch of us, like last week, we're bandying about that it would be a cool idea for one password to have a custom keyboard. I guess that rules that out for them. I mean, they still have a cool app for iOS. Yeah. But I, we were, you know, just bouncing ideas. We had the idea, well, what if they made a keyboard? Yeah. I'm and, sure they'll come up with some way of making it nice and because you can't have the keyboard. So up until you put the password in, you can have your custom keyboard. So maybe you can see what site you're on and just copy the, copy the uh, the password to the to the pasteboard so you can paste it in. Yeah, something like that. You know what I mean? They can do something. But when you do think about it, it's like, well, yeah, it kind of makes sense to only trust the system to handle those kind of events, right? So yeah. Secure kind of, entry. Yeah, I think so. I think it kind of does. Um, what else? What was the other kind? There's the keyboards. There's the sharing extensions. Um there's the stuff in the today screen. Oh, right. Yeah. And that's the same thing where those are like they're they're little more or less little standalone applications that run in a different context instead of running as regular apps in the system, they're like little mini apps that run right yeah. in that in that notification center context. Yeah, and it's far more than less. It's um so what they are is like little bundles that sit inside your app bundle. And uh, I don't want to get too techy, but um, inside an app, you usually specify the, the principal class, like the, the class, the Objective-C class that's going to be loaded and, and run. And it's, um, it's a UI application class on, on iOS or a subclass of it. Um, for these bundles, rather than um, having the, you know, rather than it being an application that is sort of the root object, um, it's just a view controller. So these are little apps that just load up rather than booting up an entire application instance, they, they just load up a, like a view controller mm -hmm. instance. And from there on in, you're running in your own code space. You've got pretty much all of the facilities that you would have uh, in, for in a regular app, modulo some differences. Um, and it's 
it's you know that the space that you're given is yours to play with it, it's you have an app and you can do whatever you want in it uh it's not like you're just pushing some xml description language stuff to the to the screen and the system's doing it it's a like an honest to god full-on application yeah that's kind of amazing and it's uh, again yeah. sort of a like a recurring theme is it's that they've given us more than we expected I would not in a million years have expected that. No. Um, I don't know. The, the APIs are interesting, too, because when, um, when you start up one of these extensions, uh, it tells you what size you're going to be. And uh, they make no promises about, uh, you know, aspect ratio or anything. They're just right. going to give you a size. And so in theory, down the road, they could be putting these, I don't know, like on the iPad, they could make them huge or they could do different stuff with yeah. them, right? Are they the same? Are the notification? This is something I don't know. It's still on my like list. I, I haven't watched the notification center sessions yet. But um, it, it are they the same for Mac and iOS? Or you they're very they're very similar. Very similar, but it yeah. you know, but you wouldn't because you don't have fat apps that one dot app bundle that runs on both Mac right. and iOS. It doesn't really matter if they're exactly the same, but they're. A lot more similar than, say, um, a Mac app and an iOS app are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, ultimately, you still got to do the... You're doing UI code at some point, right? So that that's divergent. But the, um, the structure and the idea and the notion is is basically identical. They These things were not developed um, in the old fiefdom system of, like, here's OS X and here's iOS and... Maybe once every few years, we'll try to sync some stuff up. These were clearly done uh, together as, as one. And in fact, the core technology is from the uh, CoreOS group. Mm. Um, so I think, you know, CoreOS had to, drove the um, the XPC and the, the that kind of side of stuff. And then the various framework groups built, built on top of that. But, you know, I think we're going to end up overusing this word, but there, clearly there's a lot of collaboration going on there. Yeah, that's, that's sort of the key word that like the central part of the post WWDC essay that I, I published yeah. today. Well, recording today on Friday. I don't know when the show's going to air, but but that collaboration press release from from October 2012 when they announced the sort of reorganization and that that Forstall was gone and Federighi was taking over all engineering and Johnny Ive all design. Um, I were clearly seeing that that was not just an empty, you know. Let's no. put a positive spin on an ugly infighting that's been put to an end. It, right. it, it was an actual statement of intent. Yeah, you know what's funny? You actually you you often make that argument that Apple just says what they're like when they do say something, they just say it straight. Yeah. Uh, uh, but but even that one, like that that memo or that that press release, you know, people were kind of second guessing, wondering if they if exactly what they meant. But no, turns out that's what they meant. They wanted to increase collaboration, and here you go. Here's the results of that. Um, it's, fa it's fascinating, and they've done a terrific job. Right, I think it's a trust but verify situation. I'm not putting it past them that someday they'll they'll find sure. themselves in some sort of hole where they have to lie or you know you know white lie or whatever you want to say yeah. to put a spin on something and that what they put out is a misdirection. I think you could certainly say that they did that with a lot of the things that they had to say about Steve Jobs's health 
in the last few years, oh, yeah. right? That that yeah. was not straightforward. And it's an exceptional situation. It was obviously up to Steve and Apple PR had to more or less play along, you know? So there's a good example of, of, you know, some press releases or, or official statements from Apple that were yeah. not straightforward. I also think that's kind of fair enough. It's a right. little bit salacious to be digging into. Right. It was very, very personal, you know. Okay. And, I, you know, maybe one more and maybe one that wasn't quite so personal, but that was an ugly situation that comes to mind was the um, the stock options backdating. Now, that's going back, I think, yes. like a decade. I mean, you're talking about 2005. But that they skated very close, you know, maybe went over a yeah. line and, and you know, uh, we're in a situation where they couldn't be straightforward. Yeah, that seemed to be like dirty pool for sure. But, but an awful lot of the time, yeah, it, hindsight proves that they're actually pretty straightforward. Uh, and I think that the, it's showing that that's clearly the case. And, and that collaboration, you know, like you said, that it's a core, you know, core OS effort. Mm -hmm. It's it's at the framework level. It's not about iOS. You know, iOS and Mac OS ten haven't really gotten any closer to each other. You know, they're not, they're too, from a user perspective, right. from an interface perspective, there's no, still no touch on the Mac. Um, you know, changing the system fonts to match each other as Helvetica Nuya is not, sure. you know, yeah. that's cosmetic. It's not technical. Um, but the frameworks have, they've really done a massive job of getting as many of the frameworks that, that could be shared between them to be shared between them. Yeah. Yeah, especially you know anything that doesn't touch the UI is pretty much uh, equivalent on either of the platforms. You know, with this you know caveats here and there, but um, you know like AV Foundation, all of the the video playback stuff, uh, certainly a lot of the core OS stuff, yeah. um, Foundation itself. Yeah, AV Foundation is probably the first one I can remember. <sighs> Boy, it was a long. It, it was a couple years ago, definitely. Yeah. Maybe two years ago. I forget. It was when it first came out. Maybe it was three years ago. That's the first one that, that might have been a sign of things to come, even though, you know, it was before this, you know, the October 2012 reorganization. But AV Foundation was one I can remember where they were in the session. You know, I was in the session and it was clearly a unification between Mac yeah. and, and iOS. Not only that, it stomped on QuickTime. Right. Which was kind of unimaginable, you know, a number of years ago. Yeah. QuickTime being a crown jewel of the, of the company. Right. I think they learned from it. It wasn't like that they, you know, threw it in the garbage, but that they more no, or no. less said, you know, you've got to start over. Yeah. Well, QuickTime was what, 89 kind of thing? Like, uh, I think 90s? it was like 91, but close. Okay. It was probably, they probably started work on it in 89 or 90. And yeah. I, re I remember running <laughs> literally like posted stamp size movies on my Mac LC <laughs> and being amazed. Yeah, I think like, this is the best thing ever. Yeah, I think like a very they they were like what we would now use as like animated gifs that that yeah. fit on a line of text. They were maybe like I don't know eighty pixels by like one twenty or something. Yeah. But it would peg your CPU too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And drop frames. <laughs> yeah, you'd be, you know you'd get like you know twelve frames per second or something. Two hundred fifty six colors. Yeah, but you'd have you know you'd have a video playing on your computer. It was amazing. Yeah, which was pretty cool. Actually, wait. Did Max do two fifty six colors with a with a color palette? Or did you just go sixteen bit? Um, no, mine had two hundred fifty six colors. You had okay. to have a better video card, and then they went okay. to that. They used to call it thousands of colors. That's it. Yeah, they had a mode which was, I think, what would it have been? It would have been like sixteen thousand colors. Uh, six five five three six. Yeah, exactly. But instead of giving you that number, they just called it. It was very Apple. 
They yeah. just called it thousands. Yeah. Um, and that was what, that was, the, you know, if you had a good, good video card. I'm trying to picture a Mac with a 256-bit color palette. How did that work with different applications? Man, I wish Syracuse were here. I yeah. remember it because I had it for years and years. It There was a standard system palette of 256 colors, but an mm -hmm. app could change that. And it was a certain ResEdit um, resource type where you would you would more or less just give it, give the, the system a two, here's the 256 colors I want Yeah. in RGB. So like, for example, I remember I had like a, it wasn't called PGA golf. I forget, but I had a golf video game that I was a, totally addicted to in college. Yeah. And I remember looking, it was like a CLUT. I think it was a CLUT resource. I forget what that stood yeah, for. Yeah, color lookup table. Yeah, that's it. That's it. It was a, a clut resource. And I remember being curious one time and I looked at it and they, of course they had like out of 256 colors it had like, I don't know, 180 shades of green <laughs> and a couple of uh, pink. So you could wear like obnoxious golf shirts and stuff. <laughs> um, but then you'd, you'd see like some weird flashing if, if you switched between two apps like that. Okay. Yeah. That's what it, cause that's what I was curious about. Cause in the background, the other app, there's one palette for the entire screen. So if you've got right. one image with a nice palette, like the other one, it's just going to look like garbage. Yeah. And so I seem to recall, mostly it was for games though. So you wouldn't notice right. most yeah. apps wouldn't switch it. And I guess if you were looking at like an image editor or something with, you know, in a regular, not full screen mode, you know, with, with windows overlapping, it would make windows in the background from other apps look, you know, all sorts of goofy. Yeah. But goofy was sort of the name of the game back in those days. So. Yeah, it, it somehow didn't really strike strike me as all that, you know. It seemed, it seemed understandable. Mm -hmm. It was gross, but it was like, well, of course, because there's only right. 256 <laughs> colors. And sometimes you need more than eight shades of green. <laughs> exactly. For golf. Yeah. Um, okay, memory lane. Uh, what were we talking about? The iOS extensions, right? Yeah. Well, let me take a break, because I have a couple sponsors to thank. Uh, and let me thank... Our first sponsor, our good friends at Hover. Did you ever hear of Hover? I have, yeah. Um, good people. Yeah, really good people. So you have a great idea. You have a great idea. You want to secure a domain name for your great idea. So you want something catchy and memorable to represent your online identity. Hover gives you exactly what you need to get the job done. You can find the perfect domain for your idea and get started working on it rather than wasting time looking for a cool domain name. Um, but it's more than just finding a good domain name. The big advantage to Hover is what happens afterwards because it's not like every other domain registrar I've ever seen where it's full of uh, spam and junk and upsells and, and gross ads and stuff like that. Um, Hover, all they want is your business. You pay them, they give you a domain name and great service, and that's it. No upselling, no ads, no junk. Um, Geeks, developers, designers, programmers have been using Hover for years and love it. Uh, you don't have to be an expert to get a domain. If you've never dom registered a domain name before, you'll love Hover too. Really easy. You don't have to be a DNS expert. They give you easy to use, powerful tools to manage your domain once you have it so that anyone can do it. Uh, they have good technical support, great technical support, really. Uh, and here's the best part. Let's say you're the opposite. And I think the listenership of this show, let's face it, there's probably not a lot of you out there who've never registered a domain. You're probably more like me and you've got like 
20, 30, 40 domains that you've never even used. Um, but you want to keep them because they're good domain names that you might use in the future. Here's the thing that, that uh, Hover has that's great. You've registered them with other hosting or registration services that stink and you kind of hate them. Hover will help you move those domains to Hover and get out of stop stop doing business with with registrars who you feel gross about. Hover will help you. They've got this great service. They do all the work for you. Um, really, really impressive stuff. Really, the bottom line. It just sounds goofy because you'd think, well, why wouldn't they be honest? But that's the thing. Hover is honest, and it's the truth is re domain registration is a dishonest, dirty business. Hover is the is the 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 good guy in the business. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to hover.com. Now, they gave me a promo code. This is great. Jeter. J-E-T-E-R. I'll explain that to you in a minute, guy. Okay. Uh, but use that code. They'll know you came from this show, uh, the talk show, and you'll get 10% off your first purchase just by typing in that promo code. So go to hover.com. They've got all the new TLDs, everything you could want. Hover.com, use the promo code Jeter uh, and find out more. I, I can't recommend these guys highly enough. So Jeter is a baseball player. Yeah, Derek Jeter, yeah. Yeah. So I hear. He's a uh, play for the Red Sox, isn't he? Uh, well, he's in Brazil right now playing uh, in the World Cup. <laughs> nice. You know, I saw I saw a thing. We I, we have so much tech stuff to talk about, but I, yeah. I know you're a fan of the football. Um, Kotke linked to a cool thing the New York Times had showing the history of the World Cup soccer balls. I was just looking at it. It's great. Oh my god, it's so great! I got to link that up. Uh, yeah. The first the first one looks like a medicine ball. <laughs> it looks like a misshapen American football. Yeah, you know that somebody took a U.S. football and just pumped it up until it went round. <laughs> Like it's it's crazy. Uh, I I guess I because I've never. I mean I'm you know a sports fan, but I'm not a, a soccer fan. Um, I had always assumed that the soccer balls that from like the '70s, that iconic black and white sort of checkered pattern, oct yeah. octagonal checkered pattern, that that was the way they always looked. But it wasn't. It was really just like a brief period in our youth when they looked like that. Yeah, but to me, I, you know, basically the same age. Yes, that exact look, that 70s checkered look, that's soccer to me. Yeah. Do you like these new soccer balls? I, I, I don't. I think that they're, they're messing around with them too much. I totally agree. No, I think they're, they're kind of crappy, actually. But uh, I, I don't know. I, maybe I'm just a traditionalist or something. But, I, uh, you know, they've got to be black and white, and they need to have some kind of checker pattern on them that's all yeah I, that's all i care about yeah they could even if they want to use these these fewer panels they could somehow put the checker pattern on it but even then no yeah. i kind of don't like the way they keep messing with it like it's it seems contrary to tradition yeah and soccer is a lot about tradition like if you did some the same thing with baseball it would the baseball would look exactly the same like here it is <laughs> 10 years you know 1920s looks like a baseball 1930s looks like a baseball yeah and there's always been rumors in Major League Baseball that in certain decades that, that, that there's a secretiveness to what's in the center of a baseball, okay. um, which I've never really bought into because, you know, you don't have to be a baseball fan to know that, you know, home runs and foul balls go into the stands all the time. Like, it, it, it's not 
it, every game, some couple of dozen fans go home with a real Major League Baseball. Yeah. So it's there to be cut open and, and looked at. But there's always been rumors like when, and when home runs go up or down, there's, there's always conspiracies that they've changed the rubber in the middle of the ball, You know that the commissioner is, has decided we need more home runs and they've doctored the balls to make them easier to, to hit further, et cetera, et cetera. I think doctoring the players is... Yeah, there was a lot more of a problem. And there was, but you have to go back 100 years for this. There was something called the dead ball era, where Hmm. where the baseballs were harder to hit further. Um, Huh, what, like, because they were constructed differently? Yeah, they were just, I don't know what the technical, I don't know what the actual technical difference was. But this wasn't like a secret conspiracy. This was, you know, a stated fact, you know, and and then uh, they, you know, it was like pre-Babe Ruth. I mean, so you're really talking like almost 100 yeah. years ago. But it wouldn't be like that. Same thing for basketball. Like, I think you could go back to like 1950 and, a ba- you, you know, a basketball looks like a basketball. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I don't get it with soccer. I can't. I can't. Well, European fashionistas, right? <laughs> yeah, I guess so. I guess I so. Know. I don't know. There's so much money in soccer, though. It's crazy. Yeah, I wonder if that's it. If they, you know, if they spend, if they make a lot of money by selling like these updated soccer balls, because you know, but I, I would think so. You know, like any sport, that the balls wear out anyway, and that there's always going to be, you know, anybody who plays on a regular basis has to buy balls on a regular basis, and it doesn't matter if they change the design; you're still buying the ball. Yeah, but getting a new design for the for the World Cup. Yeah, I guess you know, so. It could spike up with thing, Yeah. And I guess what it does is it makes everybody want to get the official Adidas ball. That it's oh, yeah. more, it's, it's yeah. you know, it's, whereas like in basketball, there's three, four, five major manufacturers of basketballs and they all make the same fundamental ball, but. Are they used interchangeably during the game? Uh, no, each league usually, it, at least at a, at a serious level, once you yeah. get to like serious like college basketball or um, You've got certainly in a professional level, it's, there's, somebody has a licensing deal in it, you know. And for fairness sake, there's one manufacturer. Yeah. But like, you know, Spalding has long made the NBA's balls. Um, but very few of the college teams use Spalding balls. They use, you know, Wilson and other brands. I don't know why that is. I guess it's, you know. Whatever. Licensing. Marketing deals. Yeah. Payola. Yeah. Uh, Extension. <laughs> right talk, on top. We could talk about goofy stuff forever. Um a job to do. Yeah, I don't know. Where, where do we get to? Extensions, good. Uh, I think maybe you linked to a piece by Sean Heber. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah, because it's, you know, it's this, uh, I, I guess a lot of people, Sean Heber had a piece where he sort of speculated, um, he works, he does all the work for Hockenberry, you yep. know. Uh, Hockenberry yeah. gets all the credit, and Sean Heber, I guess, does all the hard work. Yeah, but when you're as big as Hockenberry, you don't want to. <laughs> yeah, you don't really need, yeah. you know, to do the typing. Um, I don't want to read his piece, but ba- basically, he he took a look at this new extension emphasis on extensions and the safety. You know, the way that it's separate apps, really, just little apps running in a different context, and speculated that that could be the future of of a new, like a next generation Apple TV with, um, you know, with apps, with an, an open, like an well, open for Apple, an app store mm-hmm. architecture. Yeah. It's an interesting piece. It's worth, worth checking out. Um, yeah. Because the, the, 
I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, okay, perfect. Because the cool thing about the extensions thing is that they don't tell you really what context you're going to be in. Yeah. It doesn't say, okay, now you're coming up for the today context or whatever. Um, it, it gives you a frame in which to project your UI in. Um, and now that you can actually use the GPU in the background, uh, I, I can see them doing something where like an app can be running and uh, projecting a UI into like an off-screen surface and having that surface broadcast to a television using um, basically, uh, what do they call it, AirPlay. Yeah. Well, for video, AirPlay is great. For games, it wouldn't be, right? No, and, it, there's, and, and, and just pie in the sky, what if, blah, blah, blah. The idea that the game is running on your iPad or your iPhone and just projecting to the screen, it, it's, it's going to be way too much latency. There's no way that you're going to get, you know, even fun casual game latency with that type. Uh, of... It depends on the game, but yes. There, well, there was it would rule out a lot of games. There's some games where that could work. All right, I'll backtrack. There's some games where it could still work, but there's a lot of games where it wouldn't. I certainly don't think you'd get a big chunk of the console market through no. that method because. Yeah, you're right. The latency wouldn't be there. All right. And the other thing that I, I keep coming back to is we know the basic, or at least at Apple TV as we know it, is the cheap parts of an iOS device. By yeah. which I mean, and, and it just seems funny because if you're old enough to think that the CPU is one of the cheap parts is <laughs> crazy because it used to be that a PC was a very expensive CPU surrounded by other stuff. Yeah. And now like the the you know the A series systems on a chip, not that they're cheap, but they're you know they're nowhere near as expensive as the touchscreen, the display, um, you know, the glass, the actual glass is the expensive part of an iPad and a, yeah. an iPhone. Batteries um, are probably expensive. Yeah, I think batteries are expensive. Uh and I think I think that it's the assembly too. I think that the you know that's not you can't really call it a component, but getting all that stuff into these crazy thin small form factors is right. expensive. Yeah, with the affordances they have, that it costs money in the tooling. Right. But, yeah. So, but then to take that little tiny system on a chip and put it into a relatively humongous hockey puck like the Apple TV, I, I think is assembly wise very cheap. Mm -hmm. So they can sell them. Like right now, today, they sell an Apple TV for $99, and it has the – I think it has the A5. Doesn't it? They never updated it. It's A5, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's it's been updated to the A5 for a while now. That you know, I think it was sometime like 18 months, two years ago when it came out. Um, but when it did, the A5 was roughly a year old. You know, it, they can put a year-old system on a chip – into a $99 Apple TV. Yeah. So that means like sometime soon, if not, if not in the second half of this year, maybe early next year, they could put the a seven system on a chip in a $99 Apple TV. Uh, and I, I doesn't make any sense. If you've got a nice a seven in there, it doesn't make any sense to only use it for airplay. I mean, you'd want to have code running on it. Yeah, like I, gra you know, graphic yeah. stuff running on metal on a seven. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, especially because, yeah, A7 starts with the, or sorry, the, the metal API, the new 3D rendering API that they have uh, requires an A7 right now. Um, again, I think it's a business thing, depending on how they think they, they can get into this market. Um, uh, ben Thompson had a good piece up yesterday 
about disrupting, like Apple disrupting the console market and how it's ripe for it. Um, I agree with you. He, he, at some point, had two products. He had like a $99 one yeah. without games and a $179 one with games, which is boneheaded. Yeah, he over, and it's <laughs> funny because a year, and I even updated it with it. A year prior, he had the right idea that it would just be a $99 device that you could run games on. Yeah, yeah I had a, had a good long chat with him yesterday on, uh, I forget what the show, Electric Shadow. Anyway, that'll come out sometime soon. He's a smart guy. Was a lot Moises' of show. Yeah, Moises' show. Yeah. yeah, we were on it together. Yeah. Exactly. And Sandy. Yeah. That was fun. Yeah. Any excuse to talk to Sandy. He, the thing, I thought his key observation was that historically, zoom out to, to you know, like the Atari 2600 in 1979 or whenever it came out. Yeah. For a very long stretch, consoles cost like 100 bucks, And then they'd try to make their money selling the games. And there was this $100, $100, you know, give or take, you know, maybe sometimes closer to 200 um, But that, I guess, probably starting with the PlayStation and certainly with, like, PlayStation 2 and then with Xbox, um, they got more expensive, mm-hmm. you know. And it used to be that PCs were thousands of dollars, you know, average price, like, $2,500, $3,000 back in, like, 1980, 81. And consoles that you just hooked up to your TV were, like, $100. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, he, he made a nice graph. It's pretty, I, I thought that was pretty insightful that they've converged, that consoles have gotten more expensive because they've gotten more powerful and, and effectively they're, they're gaming PCs yeah. and PCs have gotten cheaper and cheaper. But I, that, that, that trend has left this pricing umbrella underneath. Yeah. The, and a big one, like consoles now are about 400 bucks. Uh, Xbox was 500, but they dropped it down. And uh, I think his argument is that um, the, the console manufacturers have been chasing sort of the, the high-end gaming market. Uh, and that's, nece- that's nece- made it necessary um, to sort of have high-end machines all the time, which costs a bunch of money. And they try to make the money back over, you know, the six-year, seven-year span of the console. Uh, but yeah, that has carved out a giant section below it. And I think for a long time, that didn't really matter um, because what was below sort of the high-end consoles wasn't a compelling experience. But now I think with, you know, with an A7 powered level chip, uh, I think you can have a pretty compelling experience that a lot of players would be happy with at a very low price point and sort of undercut the the high-end console market in a way that they don't expect and they can't really compete with. Yeah. Uh, and I don't think it's just about games. And I know that a lot of us, I'm not even a gamer. I mean, I don't, no. I don't play a ton of games, but I, I know you do have a background actually making games, but I think maybe that's part of the, the thing that we're overlooking is we're only focused on, um, watching movies and TV shows, mm-hmm. right. On an Apple TV or, or any of these, you know, devices that you hook up that you could do that on a TiVo. You can do it on, you know, you can get movies and TV shows on your PlayStation and your Xbox and games. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's other, you could do anything you'd want to project on a TV. Right. Yeah. And so think about the way that, uh, and we can talk about other things that have been Sherlocked, you know, by announcements, but <laughs> it, it occurred to me that maybe like Panic's status board could be Sherlocked by a future Apple TV that runs notification center widgets. Sure. 
Yeah. Right. And that, you know, you might not do it in your living room for your family, but that if you're a business, you know, you might have a TV set up with, you know, uh, Apple TV hooked up to it and just run notification center and have, you know, company information and, you know, status. I'd do that in a second. I think it's a good idea. Right. And it's powerful because then it's not just what, here's the widgets Apple thinks you might want. It's any widget from any app, including ones that you, the company with this board up on the wall, wrote yourselves for your own internal system. Yeah. No, I totally agree. I think it's a great idea. You know, and you, you know, $99 box that you just plug into a TV is pretty, that's like not a huge argument you have to have with the procurement office in order to get that, right? Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it's you know it's lunch for four or five people. Exactly. Yeah. So no, I think that's a good idea. I guess um, you know, and also you could project your slides onto it for when you want to do the presentation. Yeah. Yeah. Anywhere where you have a screen or project something is a possible place where you would use Apple TV, and that you know having these extension APIs make it possible to do a lot more than just show video or play a game. Yeah. I think it's a. I think there's an interesting product in there. I don't know if they're going to call it Apple TV, but... Yeah, who knows? Who knows if they change the name of that? And I also don't know if it's a this year thing or not. I think that... I I get a sense it's a little bit further out. Yeah, I kind of did last week, too. Um, And I don't know. It doesn't seem impossible. I don't know know anything for sure, but... I kind of get the feeling that the that it's not on the list of things that are coming at the end of the year. No, and it, you know everybody seems excited about the list of stuff that is coming. So yeah, but I think there's a that's lot good. of people who assume that TV has to be one of them because it's the one that's been the ru- rumored for the longest. Well, I mean that's kind of the classic thing, right? Everybody assumes it, it gets back to what we're talking about about the uh, the extensions or the you know the accelerated WebKit. People say they want. A specific thing and then apple just kind of delivers something different that does address the problem yeah so i don't know if it's going to be a watch or a tv or whatever but whatever it is they, they seem pretty pleased with it yeah sort of different topic um one of the things i wanted to write about but i skipped because i felt like i'd gone long enough in my piece but when i when you go to wwdc and you were there i was there um you see people who you don't see throughout the year, especially people who work at Apple, you know, mm-hmm. people who I'm friends with or semi friends with, or who I at least have met before. And there's a certain personal repertoire. Mm-hmm. And like I said to, with Mark Gurman on this show a couple of weeks ago that you develop, you know, not, not necessarily giving spilling secrets or, you know, tips that are, you know, super juicy or something like that. But you can learn things that you wouldn't learn any other way because face-to-face communication is somehow more human. Man, man. Um, I really got a sense talking to people at Apple last week at WWDC that they're happy, happy in a way that they haven't been again. In fact, one friend literally said the words, uh, it's fun again. Oh, that's cool. Which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Did you did you pick up on anything like that or or? Yeah, it's somebody tell me almost exactly the same thing. Like, yeah, I'm having a lot of fun. So, and that's, that's interesting. Yeah. It yeah to me it's really interesting, and I thought that that fun again was a was a big tell. It's and again, it's not because they're uh, taking it easy and relaxing. I mean, these are people who love their work. Yes. No. No. These people 
f- fun again probably means that they're working the weekends. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately. I hope not because that just burns people out. But fun again means that they're tackling interesting problems and they're having a good time. Well, and I think it, it gets to the part – I think it is also part of what I did write about, which is this sort of like go back to the collaboration mm-hmm. and more parts of the company working together on the same things, you know, mm-hmm. and that um, that there were iOS people working on um, the umbrella – you know, it's an umbrella term. Continuity isn't one feature. It's, right. it's you know, an umbrella name for several features. But that they're working hand in hand at the same time with people doing the same frameworks on the Mac side, because the whole point of them is to, you know, like handoff. Mm-hmm. Handoff doesn't exist if they aren't collaborating, right. right? But it means that there's more people that nobody's like sitting there twiddling their thumbs while the attention of the top executives is all on iOS eight. Right. Well, I mean, and the that, program office used to be divided between OS groups, and now they, it's combined. Right. And it's. I think that it's, it's meant that more, a lot more, not just a little more, but a lot more engineers are fully engaged on high-priority projects than ever before. And that's what makes them happy. I, I think so, yeah. Plus, I mean, so last year, um, it had been a slog to get iOS 7 out. Uh, the four-style departure probably soured some people. Not not that they were bitter necessarily, just that, um, you know, it's a big change-up, so that there's always some kind of gnashing of teeth when, when there's a change-up. Yeah, I worry about that too, and I, I hope that I mean, what I wrote didn't come across as being anti-Forstall, because I, I feel like as time goes on, it's easy to slag on the guy, and as time goes on, I actually think it, he doesn't deserve it. No, I think he did an amazing job. Everybody I've talked to that's worked with him has right. nothing but high praise for him. Right, and, and I think that's what yeah. might have soured some people, is that the People who worked under him, who were in his division, the iOS division, mostly really, really liked and admired him. And they always felt like that he had their back. And because he was an effective corporate infighter and was obviously famously, you know, close to Steve Jobs, that having their back meant that they, you know, that's a great boss, right? That's a great guy to be working for. Um, I get and. The other thing, it, it, I didn't know this till recently. Like it's a Don Melton story, but the Don Melton story that that Forstall was the guy who went to bat for the carbon strategy. Mm-hmm. Now we're going way back. Now we're talking like nineteen eighty eight, nineteen ninety nine. Um, you know, you you talked about this with Rich Siegel on yep. Debug recently. A yep. Great, great episode of the show. Rich, my was actually one of the few people who I could say is my former boss yeah. uh, at Barebones. Um, he was a blast to talk to. Yeah. Oh, he's super thoughtful guy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so but we he covered, talked about it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. We covered the. But go, long story short, you know, the you know Apple buys next. Uh, next comes in Steve Jobs and the next leadership effectively take over Apple. Uh, correctly, you know that's yeah. they were you know the people who were the whole reason Apple was in trouble was that their leadership was was crap. Yeah. Uh, they come in, they come up with a strategy and their first strategy is, okay, everybody's going to write Cocoa apps because Cocoa's awesome. Trust us. It's better. Now they're correct that Cocoa is great and that it was better. Yeah. They were not correct that that was an effective, that Apple was in a position to dictate something like that right. because they needed uh, big developers like Adobe and 
Microsoft to have their apps on the system. And rewriting from scratch was not something they were going to do for a system that might not even work, right? right? Because Apple had been promising next generation operating systems for the whole decade of the 90s. Um, And at the smaller level, developers like Barebones, the small ones, weren't on board with it either because they could actually even less afford to gamble because they couldn't afford to spend a year rewriting for a new system. You know, that it it could put a small developer out of business. Um, So along comes this idea of carbon. Right, and it's surprising to me in hindsight, but not really having met Forstall, you know, uh, uh, once or twice and, and knowing a little bit about him. But knowing that he was an, a next guy, had been there with the next, it was, there was a perception on the Mac side that the next people all wanted, that they were a little religious about Coco and mm-hmm. the next stuff. And it's interesting to me that one of the next guys was the one who really fought for the carbon strategy within Apple. And the whole reason, I, well, I think practical in terms of realizing that it was a good strategy for Apple to keep developers on board. Mm-hmm. But I think it was also the case that Forstall always... He he was a supporter of third-party developers. Yeah, I think so too. So we haven't released it yet, but uh, we did an interview with uh, Eden Ganatra, who was the uh, director in charge of um, iOS apps, uh, like from the beginning of the project to, I don't know, a couple of years ago. Um, it's just going to be on debug? On debug, yeah. Oh, oh. It's not out yet, but it man, it went long. <laughs> it's like four hours long. So it's going to be in two, two hours, I guess. But the first half, he started in 93. And he was with the company during this entire process that you just described. And he was working on Carbon. Uh, and it's... So if anything that John just said interests you, there's going to be <laughs> more, more information than you can shake a stick at on, on a coming up debug show. But Neaton's awesome, though. He's such a smart, smart guy. Yeah. I don't want to say it's ancient history, but it's certainly history at this point. And it's a, surprisingly little of that has come out. I think it's just the nature of Apple's culture of not really talking about the internals of your work. I mean, it's not secret anymore, but, yeah. you know, it's not like I think Don Melton is burning any bridges by having said that. It's it, But Apple people just don't talk about stuff like that. No. So to hear these stories is, is usually there's something new to learn. Yeah, it's a treat. That's kind of why the, uh, it's kind of why the interview went so long. I, I wanted to talk to him. You know, we, we try to get the backstory on people and then focus on something. I was going to focus on, you know, iOS development and the apps. Um, but it was just so fascinating, all this historical stuff. Felt I just couldn't help but go down the rabbit hole on it. Yeah. So anyway, I, I you know, it, it's a, I think the, as time goes on, the Forstall story and, and you know, whatever friction there was with him and the other executives and Cook's decision to, to, to oust him, it's not a simple story of, well, Forstall was a, you know, a bad guy or an asshole. And, you know, I think it was a complicated story and probably without question in my mind, the most difficult decision that Tim Cook has made as CEO. I'd say so. Didn't you have a piece arguing that? Uh, I think so. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I think as time goes on though, and we hear, you know, just to hear stories like that, like to hear that Forstall was the guy who went to bat for carbon, even though he was a next guy yeah. who, who clearly was evangelizing for Coco. Um, uh, you know, it just shows that he was, you know, he was good for third party developers, you know, yeah. but that it still might've been the right, you know, and I think more and more, it seems like it was the right move to, to move on. Well, it's, and, it's hard to look at this WWDC and argue that they made a misstep. Right. Right. It's clearly not in the gutter. I mean, as, as great as, as Forstall was, this is a 
I don't want to say a new era because it's not, but it's you know, grown the, up. The, That's where I've what I've the, I've chosen to, to frame it is that the company has grown up. I like that. That's good. You know, yeah. there's a maturity to to their opening up internally. Sure. I mean, people have been saying it's a new Apple, and uh, yeah, maybe, but not really. <laughs> Ultimately, Apple is still going to do the the thing that you can depend on them to do, which is uh, act in their own interests first. Because it's a company. That's the way the world works. Uh, but now they, they seem to see their interests uh, aligned with third parties in, in, a, in a much more open kind of way. In the, Where maybe previously they thought they could just do everything in the today view. We're all up well, to share I, stuff, right? Being a grown-up as a human is largely, to me, about being disciplined. Mm-hmm. That you can be an idiot when you're, you know, a teenager and, you know, college student and maybe even in three or 20s. But that at a certain point, you've got to stop being an idiot and you've got to be a little bit more disciplined and behave in a way that's not necessarily, you know, whatever you want to do at the moment, but it's, you know, part of a larger plan. Right. And I think it's true for companies, too. And I think that immature I, – I say new Apple is the new Apple after they reunified next. with yeah. Next. Yeah. And that I love that term, by the way. I, I don't know if I'd heard it that way before. Reunifi- the reunification. Reunifi- yeah, well, it's good. <laughs> I, I, I've been using it for a little bit. and, and It just struck me last night when I read the piece. Right. Yeah. Um, well, I've thought about that because, you know, a lot of the next guys, there's guys like Bud Tribble who, like, bounced. I think he was at Apple, then at Next, and now he's back at Apple. You know, it, so, yeah. it wasn't just Steve Jobs, right? And And... When Jobs left, he took Apple people with him, or or there were Apple people who, after Jobs was forced out of the company in '85, who then left Apple and then went to Next because they liked the Apple when Steve was there. Right. You know, and that it to me that's the best way to see it. I know that some people phrase it as, "Hey, it was a reverse acquisition that Apple bought Next and Next took over Apple." Um, at a leadership level, that's true. But I think it, reunification is, to me, the best way to look yeah, at it. I like that, it. Makes that, it sound that, happy, too. So. Right. That, that in their hearts, they were always in, in alignment. That they two companies that valued the same things. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, design and interface, for sure. Yeah. All right. Well, let's come back. I want to come back to this corporate maturity. Remember that. Okay. But I'm going to take a second break here and thank our great friends at Squarespace. Everybody knows Squarespace. They've sponsored this show many times. They sponsor a bunch of other shows. Here's the thing. They sponsor this show repeatedly because people keep signing up because they have a great service. Uh, People haven't checked it out. You've heard me talk about it. Um, But then when people do, they finally, hey, I do need a new website because I'm starting my own podcast or you're starting a blog or you're uh, selling T-shirts or something like that. Uh, And then, you know, people who listen to these shows, they think, well, everybody's always telling me about Squarespace. I'll go look at Squarespace. Well, guess what? When people look at Squarespace, uh, there's a reason they tend to sign up. And it's just a great thing. It's an all-in-one service for hosting, building, designing a website. A website of almost any sort that you can imagine. Like I said, you could do a blog, you could do a podcast, you can do a store, all sorts of things. They have built-in templates, professionally designed, really, really good looking um, to choose from. You want to customize the design because you know CSS. You can do that. You want to decide which components to include on your website. You can do it in their graphical interface, drag and drop, uh, move stuff around. 
On the other hand, you know code. You can go in and you can inject your own JavaScript if you want. So they've got high-level features, uh, nice visual editing, low-level features where you can inject code if you're safe, to, if you feel you know you know how to do that. They have award-winning technical support. They've just expanded. They used to all be in New York. Now they're in uh, New York and Dublin, um, twenty-four hours, seven days a week. If you have a website idea for a website that you want to build, or you have a website and you're not happy with the system you have running it right now, go check out Squarespace. Squarespace.com/gruber. Squarespace.com/gruber, uh, and they also have an offer code. Now the offer code is JG. Just my initials, JG, uh, and you save 10% off. Big bucks over the lifetime of your account, because once you go there, you're, you're going to stick there for years. Uh, so my thanks to Squarespace. So corporate maturity. Yeah. That's, that's how I look at it. I do. And, and I think it's discipline. And it takes discipline to do multiple things at once and to collaborate. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and I think when Apple's was new Apple was immature... I think that it 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 manifested itself in do one thing at a time, and it left a lot big parts of the company untapped, you know. And, and that you know, I linked to it today, and Jowkit had a great piece on it in two thousand seven. But I uh, in two thousand seven, when the iPhone first came out, they had a press release. They actually had to issue a press release before WWDC. And because they, they, it wasn't that they were expected to announce Leopard. They had, they were expected to release Leopard. It, Leopard was supposed to ship to consumers at WWDC, not like a developer beta, but the real thing. And they had to say in advance of WWDC, this isn't going to happen. We're going to shoot for October. Um, We'll have a beta for developers at WWC, but it's nowhere near shipping because we had to pull engineering and QA resources off Mac OS X to ship the iPhone. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and it's not the only example of it, but that, you know, that that they were, you know, and I, you know, I think a lot of it comes down to Steve Jobs, that he was insular and... You know what his attention was on was where he directed the company, and it yeah. was well insular focused. I mean, he well both. Okay. You know yeah. that he was focused. That the it, it it's a different thing for the company to be focused than for one person to be focused. Sure, yeah. I think, and I think mature Apple is doing more things at the same time, but in unity. That they're not all over the place. You know, and yeah. and an example. Um. And maybe it's unfair. Maybe you tell me if it's unfair. But I, here, so Apple announced a new programming language, and it, it really is new, and it's interesting. We can talk. I'd like to talk to you and see what you think about it because I've what I've learned in two weeks since it was announced is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, but it really is a new language. This is no joke. It, they haven't just you know made a small tweak to some existing language, um, and that's a pretty big deal. And they expect to have. It's a very big deal. Yeah. You know millions of apps written using this language starting this year and it runs on both ios and mac yeah so it's not like this abstract here's a new language and but it doesn't really you know you can't use it to write apps or or you can't use it to write mac apps yet you can only use it to write ios apps or the other way around it's no here's an here's a new language and you can start using it now or very soon, because, you know, the syntax is, like, in beta. Yeah. Um, but, the, you know, I think they expect to finalize it, at least finalize the 1.0 version of it very soon. Um, 
and you can start using it for real in production. Now, compare and contrast, contrast that with, with Google, which put a crackerjack, like Hall of Fame team together uh, of language guys, the, you know, the, and they came up with a new language, Go, which has a, you know, I don't, I wouldn't call it that close to Swift, but it's the same basic idea of let's solve the problems of C without losing the performance yeah. of C. Uh, let's do something like safety. Like that's the big theme of that's shared by almost all newer systems languages. Right. You know, Java was uh, you know the having it in a runtime is a, about safety and security. Yeah. Same thing with C sharp, which is you know in layman's terms, Microsoft's version of Java, uh, or maybe Microsoft's vision for something like Java. Um, Go is about, you know, getting rid of uh, pointers and stuff like that. Swift is about getting rid of pointers and memory management and stuff like that for safety and for programmer efficiency, but while having that same performance. But so Google has this new language, well-respected. It's, it's been out for a while now. Yeah. Um, but it has absolutely nothing to do with Android. So they've got this platform with hundreds of millions, maybe even close to a billion now devices running it and a new programming language, but the two are just, there's no relationship between them whatsoever. Yeah, they're completely divorced from one another. Android right. uses it, a, a version of Java. Right, and and maybe that's unfair that it, you know, that anything Google does has to be part of Android or something like that. But it just seems to me that Google is still an immature company in that regard and that they have these different initiatives and they're not really pulling together. It's a throw it all up against the wall and see what sticks. Yeah, I think they're, they do have a little bit of that sort of uh, academia style thing, which I'm, I'm really not knocking, but they will try a bunch of different stuff. And sometimes they come up with really, really cool stuff. Yeah, that's exactly what Go seems like. It's, and yeah. and that's, that just doesn't mean that Go, there's anything wrong with Go no. or that, no. you know, that they should have done differently. But to me, there's something more interesting and more about Apple's Swift because it's so practically useful. Yes, and in fact, you can tell from the design of it that it was built um, to interoperate with Objective-C. Yeah. Like the way that they, they, they have like pseudo-named functions, uh, pseudo-named parameters in the functions, uh, like Objective-C. Um, I don't know how nerdy <laughs> you want to get here. But in Objective-C, you have like multiple parts to the, to the method name, right? Right. After each, after each part, like, um, I'm trying to think of one. Uh, uh, URL for resource by in, or of type. That that's a method. So there's two parameters. Um, so in a Go function, you can you can name them similarly. So each parameter in a function can have a separate name, but you can't swap them around. In, in many languages with named parameters, you can uh, name the you parameters. You mean with Swift, not with Go? Oh, sorry, with Swift. Yeah, right. sorry. With um, with Swift, in many languages with named parameters, you can um, put the parameters in arbitrary order. That's not the case with Swift because it's built to interoperate with Objective-C. Can you, in Objective-C, you couldn't move them around either? No, nope, can't do it. Right. Because what happens in Objective-C is it basically takes all of those parts and it sticks them into one string, a method name effectively called a selector. And that's what gets looked up in the runtime. Right. Um, yeah, like the traditional way of doing it would be if you have two parameters to a method call or call it a function, whatever. Um, you in most languages you have to know which order to put them, mm -hmm. and you say, "Here's my function. My function, parentheses, first parameter, second parameter, and you have to know what those two are yeah. in mm -hmm. that order. And then once you get to three, 
you know, maybe if you get to four, you're, you've got a problem with your, your design of the function, but you know, three is not crazy, but then you've got three things to remember and you could easily screw that up. And if they're both, if two of them are integers, you're not going to get a compiler warning and you might have a bug that's very, yeah, you could swap them around and you don't have the context to understand what they are. So the name parameters helps a lot. Right, because it reads more like language, yes. where the you know the purpose of the second parameter is right there, where you're putting it. Right. I see exactly what you mean, though. So in Swift, in theory, they could have done it, you know, w w which sounds like a nice idea. Here, just put the name parameters in in whatever order you want. Right. Um, but I see what you mean that it's it's meant to be a sibling to Objective C. Yeah, because it runs on the same runtime. So, uh, so just. just explain Objective-C for a second. Um, there's the language of Objective-C, and then there's what's called the runtime, which is kind of what, you know, where the magic happens effectively. Um, the runtime is where all the classes are. The runtime is where um, when you send a message to a class, when you ask the an object to do something, um, under the hood, what happens is we you go into the runtime and you look up where the little piece of code that can respond to that message lives in memory. And then the computer j jumps to it, so and it starts executing that code. Um, so that runtime is shared between Swift and Objective-C. It's the same runtime. Um, what's different is the, the language layer on top. So Objective-C is kind of, I guess, now the, the traditional way of addressing that language, which is uh, that runtime, which is obviously C-based, so it's got all the, the power and folly of ancient C. Uh, and it's got this objective layer on top of it, which is where you get all the classes and the, the message handling and all of the, the fancy stuff that you've come to expect from Coco. So Swift is just another way of addressing that, the, the, the runtime. And it does away with all of the sort of the follies of C. It, arguably, it, it picks up a few of its own here and there. But it's, like you said, you get rid of pointers, you get rid of all of the hopefully most of the ways that you can kind of cause trouble and, and be insecure. What do you make of, um, can some of this stuff I haven't followed too closely, but in the keynote, they, they put forth that not only was it as fast as objective C, but they gave two examples, you know, where they showed that it was faster than yeah. C. One of them seemed a little realistic, which was like some kind of, you know, uh, standard, security uh, compression or not uh, encryption yeah. algorithm and that the same encryption algorithm, you know, mathematically intense uh, in, in Swift was actually faster than an objective C. Mm -hmm. The other one though, and I think it was you at dinner last week. I think you even pointed it out. It was actually <laughs> just total bullshit. It was a quote, complex object sort. Yeah. I was talking to, <laughs> I think it was Syracuse and I were chatting about it. Um, <laughs> Like that's not a thing. I don't understand. Like, that's it was at dinner with the both of you at the yeah. at the prime rib where we were yeah. joking about what what a nonsensical like it means nothing. It, uh, it's, it could mean anything. That's the thing. Right. It could literally just mean anything. Um, and so that one was much faster than Objective C. So the reason I'm going to guess that that one was faster is that in Objective C, every time you want to see if two objects are equal, you need to go and look up the the method, like the is equal method. So you have to go to the runtime. So you get one trip for the runtime per object to check if they're equal. And if you're going to sort something, obviously you're checking if stuff's equal a lot. Um, now with Swift, because you can say that all of the objects 
that you're going to sort are going to be the exact same type. You only have to go look up that method once in the amount of time. Because once you've got it, you know that it's going to apply to all of the objects in your collection. Do you know what I mean? I mean yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. So you, rather than asking each object, okay, how do you want me to compare you? Okay, here's a little bit. Maybe it's not an expensive thing, but it's, if you're doing it to well, sort. It's going to add up. And I'm, yeah. when they call it a complex object sort, I'm pretty sure they just threw a whole bunch of crap at it. Like a lot. Right. And, you know. So, yeah, Swift is faster. Um, right. I, there's, in other words, I think it's, 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 let me see if I can put it in layman's terms, is it would, Swift would allow you with objects to do something just once, even if it's 100,000 objects, hmm. that would have to happen 100,000 times in Objective-C. And even if it's relatively lightweight, you're still, there's something that you don't have to do each iteration, each comparison. But it, and it is, it's in Objective-C, it's, it's, very small, but you know, but at scale, is, everything know, adds up, right? So, right. Yeah. When you're doing something, when you're got a hundred thousand items to compare, anything you don't have, you can do once instead of each time through the loop is is a win. Yeah. So that's maybe a little bit of a contrived example, uh, right? Because you could actually trick that in Objective C too if you if you have fancy pants. Well, the thing I I'm thinking about though is the fact that and and I I would think and so far from what I've seen, I've seen. It, it, I've seen some performance examples that people have written, simple little things where Objective C still comes out ahead, but that it's easily that Swift looks fast enough. Oh and yeah, whether, yeah it's certainly fast enough. Yeah, yeah. right. Like well, it, it, if there are problems with Swift, it's not going to be about performance. No, 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 no. no I don't want to. I was ragging on that particular thing. Um, right, uh, Greg Titus. That's more, and I think that's more of a marketing issue than a, you know for the keynote yeah. than a, yeah. a, 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 it, it might it's let's face it i don't know this but it, it, the swift team was probably rolling their eyes at that too i i would not be surprised they are not dummies they're very 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 smart people um, <laughs> to say the least <laughs> um i think so i think i think it was greg titus uh omni group guy um a classic comp side problem is called a try like a t-r-i-e and uh he's got a very fast objective c code to sort of do it and he rewrote it in swift and his initial implementation was 80 times slower uh but he managed within a day of sort of optimizing and figuring things out he got it to be only 1.5 times slower than than objective c now keep in mind his objective c one he's had since forever uh he's been using it for performance testing stuff for a long time like 20 years um and he got the, the swift one within very close to it in only a day and his conclusion, and this, I mean, this is from a series of tweets, so if I'm getting something wrong, I apologize. Uh, but his conclusion was that it's going to take a little bit of time to figure out how to make Swift fast. Right. But it's certainly got it where it counts. Like, you can, you can definitely get there. And I'm, I'm, I'm eager. I'm looking forward to it. I think it's telling that effectively what we now know and he didn't take credit for it. And it's typical Apple way, but the, you know, it makes sense that they let Latner, Chris Latner do the demo in the keynote, which was super cool. Yeah. I was, right? I was I mean, surprised. That, like compiler guy comes out of his cave and just walks onto right. the stage. That's pretty cool. In a, yeah. in a keynote where there were only five people on stage. Yeah. Right. There was a cook, mostly Craig Federighi, a senior vice president, uh, one product demo by Brian Kroll, yeah. who's a, a, you know, like on Schiller's team, a product marketing guy, one by Jaws, who's I think second to, to Schiller in product marketing. 
Uh, but those guys were both on stage very briefly, mm -hmm. you know, maybe like five minutes each. Uh, and then a nice big demo from Chris Latner yeah. in the keynote, which is crazy. Yeah. Um, but it, you know, effectively what we now know is that, uh, for about a year, it started, he started in 2010 and for yeah. the first year, Latner was doing it on his own. So it's, you know, not that it's his language and it should be swift by Chris Latner, but that he's the, you know. Oh, he's certainly the, the father of it, you know, the progenitor, yeah. I guess, is maybe the better right. term. And he's the guy, you know, who did the compiler. He's, you know, Clang and, and LLVM. Yeah. So I think it's interesting that the language came from the compiler and not the abstract, you know, yeah. like, you know, uh, uh, like Ruby, like Ruby it's like Matt's had the idea for the language, right? And it, you know, I'd, or that's how I, you know, not that it's anywhere near as complex as a programming language, but that's how I did Markdown. Here's, here's what I want. Right. I want to put asterisks around a word and then have uh, M tags come out around it in the output. And then I, then I figured out, well, how do I make that happen in a Perl script? Um, whereas Latner was starting with, here's a compiler and here's a runtime and here's a bunch of frameworks for, mm -hmm you know, a, a huge, you know, wide frameworks. How do I make a language that's optimal for this? Yeah. And so I don't think it's any, you know, I, it would probably be surprising if the performance was bad because, you know, he started starting with a compiler. Guy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This, and there is a little bit of a language wonk smell to Swift, um, but I could just be an old man. I don't know. Yeah, I think so too. Um, I guess, and I don't know. I don't know if I should be surprised or not. I did think it was crazy. I forget whose tweet it was. Where I was in a, a thing on um, on Swift. It was with Syracuse, and we were talking about like how big the language was. Might have been another Omni guy, um, but somebody said just go to a playground and go import Swift to import the the Swift. Um, what is that? I, would you call it the? Um, I don't even know what that is when you import Swift. It's like the 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 framework. The I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, like the not the runtime. Uh, well, whatever it is, but the, it's the Swift package, itself. Like the, yeah. yeah, yeah. I think they have a name for it, and I think. Um, and then you command click Swift after you've imported it to bring it up in the playground and inspect it, yeah. and you can see that Swift itself is actually written in Swift. That the language yeah. is actually the the true. What is the language itself is extremely thin. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm looking at it now. So there's no, so all of the built-in operators. Uh, right. So an operator is like an equal or an addition or a minus. Even or, just addition yeah. is not really part of the language. No. It's in the Swift object or class, you know, that's implicitly imported into every Swift program. Yeah, it's a Swift function. Yeah. Right. Because I thought, I was a little surprised they did operator overload. I did. Were you at first? I, yeah, I'm not a fan of operating overloading. Um in some cases, it God, this makes... is turning real comp side. Yeah, I, I hope know, people sorry. are entertained. Yeah, I hope, yeah. I, operator overloading. C++ is the only language I ever did any work in that had operator overloading. And the gist of operator overloading is you could... So you could say, right out of the bag, if you say 4 plus 4, you're going to get 8 because it knows how to do integers. But you can write your own class. And your class could be, uh, I don't know, a color. And you could say color A plus color B and get a new color. And you define what it means to add, add colors. one color to another. Yeah. And Which in some, just, in some cases, that's cool. 
So you don't have to write a function that says add colors, color A, color B. You could just say color A plus color B. And you've that's overriding the plus sign in the language. Sounds great, but in practice, it would drive you nuts because people who you were working with, if you're sharing the code, would do stupid things. Yeah. Somebody would come that would make Somebody would have a cute idea and you would look at something like an expression like A plus B. And it would not be A plus B. It's like A plus B, but B is like, well, we won't let any negative values in. Like some weird, right. some weird stuff. Just, why? That you would never guess by looking at the code. Yeah, you can't. Right. You have to. Yeah. So I am not a fan of operator overloading. Uh, yeah. It does ultimately come down to basically you're going to have to trust the team that you work with. Yeah. Which is true for like a lot of programming. Um, but I, I, I kind of feared that a lot of crazy shit is going to it's going to sort of hit the fan. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know. But the reason, once you do go to a playground and do import Swift and command click Swift, you can see why it has operator overloading because all of the operators in yes. the language are defined in Swift itself. Yes. Swift itself. Yes. It's Which is like a sort of recursive mentality that I imagine is comes naturally to, to somebody like Chris. <laughs> yeah. yeah, like Chris Ladner is, you know, if, if I explain this to him, how interesting it is, he'd be like, well, you know, I probably like, why would I do it any other way? Right. You know, it seems, but as to me, it's sort of like mind bending, like looking behind the matrix, like, whoa, all of these super simple things, like what does the plus sign mean when you have an integer on one side and an integer on the other is defined in Swift itself. Yeah, and, and, uh, <laughs> it's kind of funny. It's like basically that, you know, they designed the base language to have like two things. You can add and you can compare. And then everything else just gets built on top. <laughs> yeah. And then you end up with a language that's not verbose. It's, you know, really, really easy to read and simple. Yeah. Or it looks like it is. It, it's you know. pretty much, yeah. I mean, I think people can abuse it, but you can abuse anything. So we'll see. I'm, I'm, I'm really looking forward to actually getting some real work done with it. Uh, I think it's going to be a long time. I think, I'm not sure if you put it on Daring Fireball, but uh, there was that piece recently by um, Aaron Hillegas. You did link to it, uh, yeah. saying that you're still going to need to learn Objective-C. Uh, I think, if, yes, I agree with him. I, I, again, I don't think that Swift is harder to learn than Objective-C. Uh, but I think what he does when he teaches is basically he just ignores all of the C stuff. And the objective C is relatively easy, but if you know once you get into the C stuff, things get a little wonky. Um, but I'd, I'd guess it's like at least two to five years out before objective C is something that you don't need in any way, shape, or form. Like at, at least, like I know that they're not shipping um, any frameworks with Swift now. Yeah, they they're probably. I'll bet they'll start with apps, right? And they even said at the WWDC that they they rewrote the WWDC app in Swift. Mm -hmm. And you know, assuming that they meant the whole thing, uh, I mean, I I'm still using it to watch sessions, and the app is great. Yeah, it's and perfect. You never yeah, yeah, it's good. never know anything. It's a good app. Better than any other previous year. Um, yeah, and presumably as the language settles down, they will start writing frameworks with it, but. I, you know, I can see why they're not, you know, they want to be super conservative with the frameworks. Yeah, well... The, the frameworks are the heart and soul of the company. Well, yeah, they are definitely the kind of jewel. And I think that that came across last week at WWDC too. 
it's you know with that where Microsoft has one operating system, Windows, that they want to run on all devices. Apple has two very different operating systems, but that sh they do share the frameworks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I'm not I thought I heard you make the or read you make that point, but yeah, the like foundation and all of the other frameworks are really what Apple shares. Like honestly, they could they could probably just pull the, the kernel bit out and stick a, a different kernel in there, and you know, so long as all the frameworks were good, they'd, they'd still be happy. You know, that it's it's the identity of the company at this point. Right. I would almost assume that that you know, not that I think that they. I don't know if they are ever going to replace the kernel, but I would almost assume that they've written them with that in mind. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like in the way that they wrote them in the mind that they should be. Um, CPU architecture independent. Yes, yeah, definitely. You know, and that's so they could switch from PowerPC to Intel and that they could switch from Intel to ARM mm -hmm. without, you know, any kind of pain or the sort of pain that, that people have had before. Yeah, I mean, that's a lot of the good stuff they got from Next and on, like, uh, Avi Tavinian and Bertrand right. and those guys. Uh, very agnostic about the particular hardware that they were running on. Yeah. Uh, let me take a third break here. Thank our final sponsor of the show. Another repeat sponsor. Um, great guys. Our good friends at uh, Transporter, a.k.a. File Transporter from Connected Data. Uh, they've been on the show before, but if you don't, not familiar with them. Here's the idea. Would you like your own private cloud that lets you securely store and share files in a way that is completely private and resistant to governmental snooping? Want a way to automatically back up all your photos and videos that you take on your iPhone and iPad? Uh, here's the idea. How could that work, though, if you're not running your own server? Well, you go there, you buy a transporter from them. It's a little gadget. It's adorable, very small, very quiet. Put it in your house, connect an Ethernet cable to it, and then you install a little bit of software on your Mac or you install their app on your iPhone. Uh, and now you've got your own little Dropbox, except instead of the data being served somewhere in uh, Amazon's cloud or Google's cloud or Apple's cloud, it's right there on your device. But you could buy two. You could have one at home, one at work, and they'll sync with each other. And all they do to go to the cloud is just to coordinate what their addresses are behind your network. There's no place in the cloud where your data is copied. It's right from the one transporter to the other. And you can set up things just like with Dropbox where if I have an account and Guy English has an account, I can share a file from him. And instead of going to some sort of shared server, it's only on our device. So personally, for peace of mind, this is uh, – the appeal is obvious. I, these guys, I've said this before when they sponsored it, they could not have gone into business with this idea at a better time, given what's happened in the last year with the NSA and other, you know, Western governments snooping on the internet. Um, but even from a legal perspective, for some people, you know, in healthcare and stuff like that, they have things that they want to share with each other, but that they are legally not even allowed to put on a device that's not within their control. Transporter can help solve that. Uh, really great idea. Well done. Nice hardware. They've got two basic ways to do it. Uh, you can get the... The puck. Yeah. The puck is called Transporter Sync. 
little Apple TV sized puck. It's adorable, very small. Then you buy the puck, you plug your own hard drive in the back. Just bring your own external hard drive, plug it in, uh, and it works. The regular transporter is a little bit bigger, um, and you can get it right from them in various sizes with a hard drive right in there. Or you could buy that transporter and just put the raw naked hard drive in there. It's up to you. A lot of options. Um, here's the idea. Uh, they had, or the sizes. They have 500 gigabyte, one terabyte, two terabyte capacities. So go there. Go to filetransporterstore.com. Filetransporterstore.com. Use this code, TTS, the talk show, TTS 10, TTS 10, and you'll save 10% off your purchase up to 35 bucks. Um, they're not that expensive, but hey, 35 bucks is 35 bucks. Uh, so use that code TTS10 at filetransporterstore.com uh, and check them out if you have any reason that you'd want to share stuff privately. Uh, great thing. I've got one here and uh, works a charm. I got one too. Full, full disclosure, they, they also sponsored my show. I'm trying to find my, my discount code so, <laughs> so I can gin up my stats. <laughs> but no, they're, they're great. I, I love it. Use it all the time. I'm literally going to use it to send this audio off to Dave. So, yeah. um, what are we talking about? We've got to wrap this up soon. But, um, oh, we never wrap these things up, man. We just, we just keep rolling. <laughs> uh, we should start talking about movies. Yeah, yeah. See nothing good recently. Uh, you know what? So here's a, a guy on Twitter. Uh, I think he's being sarcastic. Uh, Brian S. Hall. I, I like people who criticize me on Twitter. Uh, just finished a long Gruber post, and it's now clear that Tim Cook is Apple's Steve Ballmer, which is exactly what Apple needs. I don't understand. So, well, I think what he's trying to say is I think he's trying to make an argument that uh, – uh, I'm going to say that whatever's going on at Apple is good. And if Tim Cook is a operations type minded guy and not a design guy, then that's, and now he's CEO that now that's exactly what Apple needs yeah. a CEO. Uh, yeah. Uh, whereas I, I, but see, I would, I would say it's too, too early to tell whether it's eventually going to be a problem, not having a product guy atop the company. Um, but I think the early signs are that he gets that and that he doesn't try to be a product guy. Yeah. I, I think the, I think if anything, the biggest mistake, you know, Balmer or, or Tim Cook or anybody who wasn't necessarily product focused could make is to try to step into the shoes of like the ultimate product guy that it's not right. going to happen. And, and by which I mean, both, both Bill Gates, I, I think he was a product guy at the end of the day, uh, in a very different way, but um, you know, he was also focused on what was actually shipping. I I think. I say, I, and I pointed it out in my piece today that I think that the the John Browett hiring and quick firing mm -hmm. is a good sign because it wasn't. And I had to tone down my initial language as I edited it because I think I called it a disastrous stint in my early draft, maybe the one that you read last yeah. night. But I changed it to ill-fated because it wasn't disastrous. Right. I mean, he wasn't there long enough to do anything really bad. Yeah. And it wasn't like... Uh, yeah, he just looked people, shaky on the wheel. and they, they Right. It wasn't, like, 
and it wasn't like people were always, you know, after he took over, you were walking into the Apple store and the computers were set up on, on folding tables, and, <laughs> you know, uh, yeah. the lights were flickering and, uh, you know, it smelled like, uh, urine in a subway station. I mean, it was, I think most people who weren't really finely tuned to what people who worked in the stores were saying didn't even notice. Mm -hmm. It wasn't there long enough. Um, I think it was a, just a cultural misfit. Yeah. Or mismatch, and, you, yeah. you know, I think, you know, I think Tim Cook knew that dismissing him was going to make him, that is Tim Cook, look bad. Right. Yeah. In a way, because it's, you know, there's the guy who was only on the job six months yeah. and they were like, oh, by the way, John Broward has left the company. Uh, you know, it's it's a tacit admission that, hey, uh, my first executive hire was a, a, was a mistake. Dud. Yeah. Right. Uh, and I think it would have been a lot easier to uh, or at least easier ego wise to just stick with the guy, you know, yeah. and instead you know, I, I think he clearly took a look and thought, you know what, uh, I think I need an entirely 180 degree different sort of person mm -hmm. to take over this job, uh, which is, you know, exactly what Angela Arntz, you know, clearly is. You know, this, the Bar or Browett came from, you know, a nickel and dime electronics reseller uh, that has a reputation, you know, for mm -hmm. being pretty low, low margin, low rent. And, you know, Angela Arntz comes from a, a very genuine high. luxury re retailer. Yeah. No, I think that, I mean, the worst thing to do when you make a mistake is to double down on it, right? So it's... Exactly. But yeah. it's easy. Human nature makes it so easy to do that because it feels like the worst thing to do is to say I'm wrong. Oh, hell yeah. Do that all the time. Every time we order one too many drinks at night, I'm like, no, <laughs> this is the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> um... Sorry, when I, I left, that, I left. made that silly. But yeah. <laughs> uh, when I left WWDC, did I tell you this? When I left we uh, uh, town, I left early. I left on Thursday morning, and you were still there for a couple of days. Yeah. And I woke up, and I thought, "Ooh, I hope I gave Guy the rest of that bottle of bourbon." Uh, <laughs> because I can't get it on an airplane. I only had a carry-on, yeah. and I would hate to throw it away. Uh, and I got a quick hurry up and pack. There was no way I'm not, you know, you were probably still asleep. I wasn't going to wake you up right. and run it to your room and give it to you. And then I looked at the bottle and it was, it was empty. And I was like, oh, well. Problem, problem solved. <laughs> problem solved. No wonder I didn't give it to him. <laughs> I was right to worry that I didn't give it to you to take with you. And, yeah. and I was wrong to be worried. Yeah. <laughs> I appreciate it. And then my second thought was to realize that that was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, a different sort of mistake. Right. Uh, here's what I have. I I think that um, complacency is the problem that besets giant companies. I agree. And I certainly think that that's what uh, I think that's what ailed Balmer's term at Microsoft. You know that he was too complacent, too willing to keep making money and you know and again in defense of Balmer record way way higher profits and revenues than they ever made under Bill Gates mm -hmm. uh you know those financial things grew 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 under 
Steve Ballmer. But I think he got complacent in terms of moving onward and being willing to cannibalize his own stuff right. and make something new and take a chance that might take away from the existing stuff. And I don't get the sense that Tim Cook is like that at all. No, I, I, I agree. Um, in fact, I was saying similar to, to Ben last night. Um, I think Nintendo did the same thing. Nintendo, for a long time, was the only console manufacturer that was you know making money on on their devices and i think they kind of they got addicted to to that kind of revenue stream and now they're kind of in a bad spot where you know if apple does do something they're just going to take the legs out from underneath nintendo yeah and nintendo can't be up on the high end because that's not what they were doing yeah, and complacency is a weird thing because yeah. everybody would say, no, I'm not complacent. I don't want, any leader is going to say that they're not. And I think Balmer would be the first to say, no way, I'm not complacent. Right. I want to b- destroy everybody. But denial is is hard to recognize. Yeah. You know, you can go into denial about things like what the iPhone was going to do to Windows Mobile. Right. Uh, which wasn't really that big, really. Windows Mobile never really was big anyway. They, they were just th- thought they were going to be big. And their whole attack plan was attacking BlackBerry. Yeah. And Symbian. Uh, it was weird. They think, thought it felt to me like they they felt entitled to be big. Mm. Do you know what I mean? It was more like yes, it, exactly right. That that you know that that was Microsoft. When Microsoft enters a market with a new platform, it's going to be a, a majority share because not because of rational reasons, but because that's what happens when Microsoft enters a, yeah. a market. Because I don't, yeah. they didn't really do anything. I mean, they had so Windows CE was around for ages, and they didn't really do anything. And they had plenty of time to. I don't know if they could have done like so. The iPhone's a leap. Let's just say that you know whatever that that's neither here nor there. But they kept shipping something that looked like Windows ninety five for yeah. years. They didn't. They never really bothered rethinking the problem. They just. Um, I think they just thought eventually it's it's gonna. You know, eventually this is going to be a big thing, yeah. and since we're already there, we'll be the ones who who re- reap the benefits. Yeah, well, to your point, it's almost immature. It's almost like they're just pouty. Like, why aren't you buying our phones? We have we're not going to give you a compelling reason to do it, but you should be. That's weird. So I'm not worried about that. I I really I I, I could not be more bullish on Tim Cook's leadership at Apple. No. Nope. Yeah, I think he's doing a great job. I think he knows his wheelhouse and sticks to it and and uh, and leaves the other stuff that's out of his wheelhouse to people who are experts. Yeah. Well, everything people we've seen we is great. Um, definitely closer collaboration between the teams or between the, uh, the two operating system groups. Um, way more opportunities for third-party developers than we've ever had on the platform before. Um Speaking with friends in the company, everybody's happy and excited. Right. Everybody seemed happy and excited on stage. Uh, they even tried to do some nice stuff in the App Store, which yeah. is, I, you know, that's kind of, I don't, I don't think that's going to change much, but they tried, right? Like, uh, there was almost nothing negative coming out of this, this, this WWDC. Yeah, it's a good way to put it. Very, very hard to find anything other than niggling details. Oh, yeah. Yeah, like I've got little complaints about Swift. and. But pretty much everything they announced was all good all around for everyone. Yeah. And well, except this... that they, they Sherlocked a couple of people. But well, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, I got a minor Sherlocking. Uh, but the, the reveal app guys got that stank. 
Yeah. So reveal, it's worth you know pouring one out for reveal because it was really clever. Uh, long story short, you probably know more about it than me, but yeah. I would explain it as sort of like a WebKit inspector for Cocoa apps. Good enough. Yeah. And in terms of like the UI, could show your app, you know, the layering, like which controls are on top or embedded. yeah, it would give you a three dimensional look at the at the way that the. The, the controls are stacked on top of each other. So if you scroll, right. you can see what's going to go behind one or the other. And it was handy. Yeah. And if you have like a drawing bug where you're seeing something that you shouldn't be able to see or not seeing something you should be able to see, that 3D view can help you. Oh, look, duh, no wonder you can't see that button. It's, you know, it's on the wrong way. Um, and really cool, really advanced, very fancy stuff. And it's like the same thing is now built into Xcode. Yeah. And... And more, you can do more with it, obviously, because it's built in. But it's it's pretty much a direct ripoff. So, good idea. I, um, you know, it kind of deserves to be part of Xcode. I, I, I don't know what to say. You know, Sherlocking is a double-edged sword, right? Like, if, yeah, especially if you're doing developer tools. Yes, yeah. it's you know. Did you ever did you listen to the episode of uh, Brent and Chris's The Record with John Chaffee? Yes, I did. So Brent Simmons and, and your colleague at Aged and Distilled, Chris Paris, have a podcast, The Record, where they're talking um, to, you know, longstanding members of the Indie Mac development community. John Chaffee of Busy Mac now, um, you know, the great uh, Busy, Busy Calc. Calc. Mm-hmm. And they're doing, uh, what's the new one that's coming out soon? Busy Contacts? Yes. Is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Um, and he talked about when he was at Extensus, which used to make Suitcase. plugins for... Yeah, and they made plugins for like Quark Express and Photoshop. Right. Okay, yeah. And I remember when I was doing like practically, or even not even practically, like literally full time work doing graphic design layout in Quark Express. There were some extensive plugins that were essential. You know that I, I, I don't use that word lightly. Like you, once you had them, you just could not go back. But his, you know, he said like we knew that the our best extensions that. There's Adobe and Quark were going to see that, and they're going to see, well, you know, if everybody's using it, that should be part of Photoshop, or that should be part of Quark Express. Right. And so it was. He said it was like, a, you know, it, you had to stay ahead of them because we needed hits. But once we had a hit, we knew that that hit was very likely going to be rolled into the next version, and that yeah. we weren't going to get a heads up about it. Right. Yeah, that was a great show, great interview. Um, yeah. That's an especially insightful point. Because it's kind of funny, because once you see the numbers spike on a certain plugin, you're like, well, that one's dead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is, you know, but and, and I hate to say it, but the same is true for developer tools, you know, yeah. and, and it's, you know, it's been evident uh, ever since, again, let's go back to the next reunification, that Apple is very, very serious about providing the definitive developer tool, you know, for, for their platform. Oh, yeah, definitely, yeah. Like when they showed off... Um, Xcode for the first time. Very clear indication that Code Warrior was going to be persona non grata pretty soon. Yeah, that they were going to do it. You know, they saw it as a strategic of strategic importance to to get all developers yeah. using the first party platform. Yeah, and it really is. I mean, next, it's like so the objective. Well, Coco, the frameworks and the developer tools, uh, in particular interface builder, uh, were pretty much the crown jewels of Next. And they've yeah. taken that and they've, they've sort of kept that. As much as I complain professionally about Xcode or whatever going wrong, 
they they do take it very seriously. I, I say this as a guy who still uses on a daily basis BB Edit and loves BB Edit and wants Bare Bones to continue to thrive. But there used to be, uh, like in the Code Warrior days, really solid support for external editors. And that you could use BB yeah. Edit as your uh, editor for Code Warrior development. And you'd miss a few things, but you'd gain things. You know, the things that are in BB Edit that weren't in their editor. Mm-hmm. And Xcode, does it still support external editors? You know what? I'm looking it, right now. At one point it did, but... It did for a long time, but not in a robust way. No, no it's and, always half And whenever you'd file, if you, could get, if you could get the ear of somebody on the team or file a radar and get a response, and you'd ask for better external editor support because I want to use BB Edit, and the answer would be, well, what, would you, what features in BB Edit do you want us to add to Xcode? Right. Which is sort of not what you want to hear if you're working at Bare Bones or if you're Rich Siegel. <laughs> or even if you're a user who wants Bare Bones to thrive so that you still have, you know, yeah. you, you know that BB Edit does well. But, you know, I understand why. Right, yeah. I do understand why. That if there's good features like that, that they want them in these free developer tools that all developers can have and take advantage of and not have to, to do that. Yeah. You know? But it does hurt, and you know, yeah. hats off to the reveal people. Yeah, exactly. I just gave up and I started using defaults and pretty much everything all the time. Like I don't like it used to be that I changed all my uh, my text colors for my my yeah, editor. And yeah. I'm like now nah, I'm just I, I've given up. I'm resigned. I'm like just give me give me the defaults. I'll work with that. Because <laughs> at least when I go to somebody else's Mac, the odds are that they've also given up and. We've all been yeah. cowed into when, doing everything the exact same. You know way. what? When you do give up like that, and it's you know. Uh, then you get a new computer. It, it there's a huge advantage. You think, hey, I used to spend three days when I got a new yeah. computer getting everything set up the way I want it, and yeah. now I just uh, log in with three things and install Dropbox, and I'm, I'm up and yeah. Running. The one thing I do is I speed up the mouse a little bit, and I make the keyboard so that it's not glacial speed. I don't know why they default the keyboard to be that slow. Oh, like when you repeat yeah the key? repeat key stuff, which doesn't matter that much anymore because they've kind of nerfed that. With the, uh, yeah, because app. half the time, you you know, if you hit, like, the E key, it gives you the iOS-style uh, pop-up for your uh, the little Frenchy things they put over there. <laughs> Frenchy things. Yeah, but for me, it's normally, like, I just type something I hate, and I just hold down delete. And when it takes, like, half a second. Oh, yeah, delete. delete. Yeah, delete would be the one. Or if you want to add a bunch of returns. But I can see how delete, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely changed some of those things. Yeah. Um, what else happened? Oh, yeah, so... Um, I was joking last week. So markup kind of Sherlock's us a little bit. Sherlock's napkin. Um, right. And I was joking last week saying that I would rather have it just be everywhere in the system because that's a cool feature. And it is a cool feature. And guess what? It's everywhere in the system. Turns out that markup, the one that they demoed in mail, um, is an extension. Yeah, I, I, knew, I figured that out and I didn't want to tell you. I don't... I, <laughs> Really? You didn't want to hurt my feelings? <laughs> well, I didn't want to. I figured it'd be better if you figured it out on your own. I, so I didn't know. But that's cool. That's really cool. So in any app now, you can just get, well, in, certainly in text edit and mail. and So any text view on the system, you can edit an image in, in uh, markup. Was I calling it markdown? Whatever. Markup. Uh, no, it's markup. Yeah. Um, or any other uh, image editing capable extension on the system and i love that idea i've always loved the idea of services that came from next that get super underused but hopefully with this new extensions mechanism 
uh, that's going to sort of breathe new life into that idea. Yeah, it's a good, you know, and, and uh, napkin getting Sherlock to sign. Yeah, whatever. That's, you, know, that's, you guys are yeah, right. be fine. You're big boys. Yeah. Um, but you're right, and it is more elegant. It, it, it's more elegant to know that it's a feature that's implemented on the new extension mechanism and not hard-coded into mail. Right. It's not that the mail.app team went in and made this feature. It's a system-level thing. And I think you're exactly right that it's the second coming of services because services, the things you see in the, you know, you go up to the application name and go down to services and you see this or you, you they put it in the control, the right-click menu a couple years ago. Yeah. Um, powerful. I use them all the time, but largely unchanged from the next days. Very much so. Yeah, in fact, I don't think... You know, maybe it takes, maybe one API change since then. Like, yeah, you take yeah. an ob, you know, what type of data? I'll take text. I'll take files. Uh, I only want here. I'm a service. I only want images. Mm -hmm. If it's an image, I'm available. Otherwise, not. And then you return the same. You return something optionally. Yeah. So it works. Super, it works like super it. basically. You you have an app. You you um, offer to provide a service in your in your your app bundle, your plist. Um, and what happens is when you get fired up, so when the user selects something and then chooses your service, it copies it onto a special co a pasteboard. Right. And then in your app, when you launch, you just look at that pasteboard and do something with it and then put it back on the pasteboard and say that you're done. And the, other, the, the app that sent it to you gets the changes. It's the most simple system you could think of, right? Like, well, I'm just going to put it on the pasteboard. You don't blow away the one that the... the the user one, the copy and paste one, you just use another one. It's simple and elegant, but it's simplicity and elegance almost shows that it dates from like 1989 or 1990 Precisely. when computers needed, it had to be so lightweight because there wasn't all that much disk space or memory or CPU time. Precisely. They're yeah. very, very thin. It, you know, they're elegant and powerful, but they're thin. Whereas this new extension system is it, in in 1990 or 91, it would have been way too heavy. Yeah. It would have been too much. It's too CPU intensive and yeah. takes too much memory. Um, it, it does bring back the, the, the heady days of 90s sort of open dock stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I've, I thought the same thing that, you know, hey, why do I have to keep going between different apps if I just want to take advantage of this app's thing right here? Like, yeah. I just want to tweet this. Here's a URL. I just want to tweet it out. Why do I have to copy and paste it and then switch to another Twitter app and then hit command N and open a tweet and do this thing and then switch back to go to where I was? It's exactly that. It's sort of like that the idea of open doc where you just yeah. here, just go to share, hit Twitter, and a little view will open right here where you are. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, with this new safety thing where it's not actually injecting any code into your process. Right, which was it's, kind of the problem with Open. Well, there was a lot of problems with OpenDoc, but... Well, and OpenDoc had problems, I think, conceptually, yes. where they, they, yeah. they lost... I think they lost the wheel by basing it on documents, rather. The fundamental thing was a document instead of an app. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Well, I think that they got caught up with what people were doing with computers in the 90s, where everybody was making documents. You know, it's new Excel files and new Word documents. Yeah. And Claris works documents, and everybody was doing documents and emailing documents, and so they thought, well, why don't we make documents the first class? So it only made sense in the '90s, I think. I think long term, the app is the fundamental metaphor, metaphor in a system is great. And I don't necessarily you know, think that's true, though. Like I, so wait, that let me back up. That is inarguably true in our timeline. 
<laughs> to, to, to simplify it. Uh, I think if computers had started with, with documents being the first class item, like from day one, you were always working in a document. So rather than a command prompt on your Apple II where you'd run a program, uh, you had some kind of worksheet that as you typed, stuff would happen to the worksheet. Do you know what I mean? I think, I think you can grow an interesting computer platform based entirely right. around documents. However, but nobody's, that's not nobody's, what we're doing now. And it was, by the no, 90s, it was uh, way too late to put the genie back in the bottle and reboot it. Yeah, yeah. and nobody pulled it off. No, 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 definitely no. nobody pulled it off. But it is that, you know, and the, man, I, I remember I had a job. This is back when I was, thought I was going to be a programmer, uh, a college internship. Uh, I think it was my third one. It was at a Windows software developer here that did project management software. And <laughs> really? I, I, had to, I had to read the open doc spec. Oh, God, I'm sorry. Because they wanted to know if they should do it, and they were already going to do object linking and yeah. embedding. And I had to read the open doc spec. And actually, like, try to understand it. And it was, it was, it made me, it made me want to just jump out a window. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. It was so hard to get your head wrapped around. Whereas, you know, even as an outsider, you know, not a, a sitting there in Xcode writing code, it's like I, I can watch the extensions, um, you know, WWDC sessions and read the high level docs and I get it. I yeah. see exactly, you know, all right, you just put it in a little bundle and a little rectangle will open up and, you're drawing in that rectangle. Yeah, it's just terrific. That in-situ editing is is brilliant. And I yeah. hope a lot of people adopt it. I really do. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, I think, see, I think it's great because I think it's a very good conceptual model for developers. Yeah. And developers will get it. I think it's really, really easy. It's almost like, well, why not do it? It's the sort of thing you can, you know, you're working on a big, complicated app. You can take, you need a break. You can work on a little sharing extension. Yeah. It's a nice little side project. Um, like the way Martin Scorsese always likes to, after he directs a major motion picture, he often afterwards directs like a commercial, often for like companies in Europe and stuff like that, because it's like a nice break. Yeah. Just, you know, go from a three hour, you know, Wolf of Wall Street. Now, now I just want to do a 30 second commercial. The, the sorbet between courses. Yeah. Uh, but I also think it's going to be huge for users because there's so much more exposed. I, I, I don't really, know what. I really hope so. Um, I don't know what the percentage of Mac users who've ever used a services menu item is, but I'll bet it's in the single digits. Yeah, I bet. Too. Even once, let alone use them on a regular basis. Whereas that sharing button, which they know from their iPhones, yeah. boy, I think that's. I think they're already using it, and I think that now that they can do more, I think that. Uh, I think they. It's really nicely exposed. Yeah, in my so. opinion, I, I think so too. Uh, hopefully, it takes off. I'd, I'd, yeah, I'd be thrilled. I, I think it's going to be a big yeah, deal. I'd be I'd less really thrilled if they tank napkin sales, but <laughs> other than that, I think it's a terrific idea. And there's there's equal exposure on, on iOS, right? Like you can have photo editing uh, extensions on iOS, which I think is going to be huge. Yeah, I think so too. Uh, like the first well, I, the first person that writes a golf filter is going to get bought immediately by Pinterest. Yeah. <laughs> It's the easiest acquisition yeah, strategy. It's like an immediate billion dollar payout from right. Pinterest. And just yeah. put it put it right into Michael Lop's uh, <laughs> camera app. All right, I gotta get going. I gotta go to dinner. Cool. Okay. It's been fun, man. Yeah. Uh Guy English. Uh you guys can find Guy on uh the Twitters at uh are you G T E? I don't G even know. G T E, yeah. Uh Three letter. You get you look at all the uh, spatials I've left for for text because you only have to use. Uh, it, well, it used characters. to be it used to be at Kicking Bear, and I, I I pulled a whammy and I got it down to three letters. 
Yeah. Well, remember, I registered at Guy English for you. You did. Yeah, and I, I didn't. I did not post a single no appropriate uh, yeah, thing to it. Kind of should have. <laughs> I don't know. I think I've got the the password somewhere. I think I took yeah. it over at some point. But yeah, anyway. Yeah, I did that at uh, uh, the chieftain. That's a chieftain. Yeah, that's very yeah. very kind of you. And and handed it over to you, like the friend that I had. <laughs> uh, uh, Kickingbear dot com. You write once in a while, but then the big thing is uh, de debug with you and Renee Ritchie. Uh, yeah, great, I think great if podcast. I think if you know nerd listeners out there may enjoy debug, uh, if only because man, we've got some great guests. We're all of us are enjoying a, an incredible um, blossoming of cool nerd podcasts. You know. Yeah. But uh, yeah. uh, no, not just because you're my guest on the show. De Debug has has really been one of my favorites, and especially recently. You guys yeah. are are killing it. Thanks, man. I, I normally I demur from that kind of stuff, but our guests are I don't know. We've got some great guests. And yeah, they, that's they the cool thing about doing a podcast is you can you can you you can just put it all on the guests and 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 be proud of it. Yeah. Anyway, what's the best way to find it? It's over at imore imore dot com slash debug, or oh, just well, go, yeah, go to iTunes. Oh, you got a you could just got a nice little tweet from uh, Jean Louis Gasset. Oh, that guy! I, I got to get him on. You the got, show. Yeah, you got to yeah. stop. You know, you got to step it up. Your guests think if it's not malts, yeah. it's garbage. <laughs>